I got a new little pet conspiracy theory I'm cooking up here. Ooh, okay. I was just saying how I needed another one in my life. (laughs) So, you know, on websites, like, um, when you want to log into something, and weirdly, like, I've been getting these for things that I, I, like, pay for, like Patreon, for example, like, to log back into my Patreon sometimes. I need to do these CAPTCHA images. And have you ever noticed how the CAPTCHAs are, like, obsessed with, like, identifying cars or traffic signals. Or crosswalks. Or boats. Buses. Yeah, or any type of thing that exists in the street. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we are all being farmed for a bunch of, like, Potemkin AI programming. Oh, okay. I think that we are the engine of data by which a uh, series of uh, self-driving vehicles in the future and maybe even in the present, are currently going to do object recognition. Mm. And so, in fact, I bet you you could easily make a, uh, or, you know, somebody who's skilled in the state of the art um, could easily make a, a robot that could answer CAPTCHAs way better and way faster than people can. So here's... Uh, I, I'm actually under the impression that that is exact, like it's been stated that that's what... Oh shit! This is for. I, I think I you can you can check it, but I'm pretty sure that I did no research on that's this. what that's what it's for. But I also think, and I can't remember where I read this, but um, part of how a captcha works is it monitors the way that your mouse moves, the way that your cursor moves on the screen, uh-huh. because a like robotic entity has very direct paths, whereas well, that's, that's you... not how humans move yeah. a cursor on a screen. We have more like waves. So that's part of what it's doing when it's identifying if you are the same with like the reading the numbers and letters is that like we don't type just like QW9C3. You type like QW9C3. And so it's the, so a lot of it is like the rhythm of, of, of a people. lot of it is looking for the kind of messiness of a human navigating that rather than like the quick certain movements. Of. Ah. So sometimes if you answer a CAPTCHA, you can get it all right, but you just answer too quickly or something. You're and so too, it's you're like, you're going to have to do that yeah. again. You're like, yeah. no, we're only letting dummies in that it takes like a little bit of squinting and like <laughs> head scratching to see if something's like a bus or like a tram. Right. Um, so yeah, capture data is used to uh, double check the work of train of training AI. Yeah. So they they use uh, actually something from DNA research. That's a, an algorithm for visual identification in machine learning, and then they test that against the human created data of captures. Well, I guess because it's all Google. Yeah. Like Google is putting all of these things together. So yeah. Well, I guess I just want to stress to everybody how important answering, you know, the CAPTCHA correctly is because you may be inadvertently giving a bad data set to a uh, self-driving car that's going to hit me on my bicycle and fucking kill me. Take some fucking responsibility, people. So if if you remember way back, like I think CAPTCHAs used to be a lot easier and they've started to get harder. Yeah. Which is another reason that it seems like they're they're just trying to get the harder use cases and they want to do more with and more demanding cars. they make yeah. me they make they, me like do fill out several of them. yeah <laughs> and then and then and then all the existential dread when you uh get one wrong you ever gotten one wrong oh I, oh as in like does it, it tell you when you get one wrong it's like you're probably a robot yeah <laughs> what does it say when you get it wrong it says you're a robot no um no it it just like makes you do even more yeah i have to do i never get away with just doing one i almost always have to do like three or four of them you ever think about maybe it's because you did it wrong and you're a robot 
You know what I think it is? I think it's the reducing um, surplus value that can be uh, recapitalized on. So they're always going to ask more and more of you every year. The captures. You know what I think it is? They keep getting harder. I think it's misogyny. I think it's because I'm a woman. Ooh, and yeah. they're just making me do extra work. And they're not even hitting me up on Venmo for all this unpaid labor <laughs> that I'm doing. Yo, so. I totally felt like super dumb guy joe rogan style like a sudden epiphany i was listening to the um real life audio podcast um that is actually like ah a man of taste i see yeah seriously it's a very good podcast it really is you know it's weird because like also like with people who listen to iron weeds totally unrelated um they're hotter like all the people that listen to it (laughs) are really hot. They are saying that yeah. more and more. People yeah. are saying that. Yeah, it's, it's true. But I was listening to this one that was written by uh, Sasha Geffen and actually narrated by Sasha Geffen, whereas yeah. all the other ones are beautifully narrated by uh, Brittany here. Uh, thank you for that, by the way. Absolutely. And it was talking about uh, how the the actual policing of uh, female nudity goes into like a, a gray zone as it relates to trans people and either pre-top surgery before and after a photo uh, would be flagged for deletion or if a trans woman was transitioning they would at some point start triggering like an actual like algorithm there's a cutoff yeah where the algorithm is like yeah that's and a what, titty right yeah. Yeah. And, and so i was I, you know i enjoy running around with my top off regularly like it's one of my favorite things to do is like once a week go on a hot long run just wearing gym shorts and and sneakers and i realized like holy shit like i could be arrested i could be like somebody could like have a gun drawn and like force me against the the ground like using like potentially lethal force because of not having a top on if i was a woman or scanned as a woman yeah which like you you read as physically yeah female yeah and like you know that's like such an overt form of like militant physical oppression that i just don't even think about that often we don't really talk about it that often as a society the fact that like but you know i said this off mic but there are very few we've gotten through you know decades of civil rights work for for the equality of genders there are very few things now that men are allowed to do and women aren't by law. Like those things have become, you know, we're allowed to vote, we're allowed to work, we're allowed to be politicians, you know. But men can have their tits out and women cannot. And, and it's like yeah. one of the last vestiges of very, very explicit, open, like police state yeah enforcement of gender roles yeah it's totally bizarre it's really bizarre and it's fundamentally subjective right like in terms of the analysis of a given breast as to whether it is profane or not i never really like heard that language put that way um and so that also like registered as sort of like an aha like oh shit yeah that's one of the interesting things in sasha's article that they write how trans men post top surgery so these are now trans men who do not have breasts that should scan as feminine, but would still trigger algorithmic removal of images because, for example, maybe their waist to hip ratio still scans as feminine to the algorithm. And so even though you're now looking at a man with no breasts in the in the sense of how we define breasts, they're still triggering the algorithm because their other parts of their body scan differently. And part of the, I don't think that Sasha gets into this in the essay, but part of that is because the ways that these algorithms are developed is that they're fed images of Man, okay, woman, not okay. Man, okay, woman, not okay. And so the 
the algorithms learn over time that it's not just about the fullness of breasts or whether someone has long eyelashes or lipstick on. Instead, it's like all of these different... Feminizing, scanning as it's, feminizing. It's the totality of what we consider to be feminine looking in such to the extent that like it comes down to the hip, like the shape of one's hips. So it's all, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and the idea of being profane and verboten because it's potentially desired. Yes. Is, and that that's what makes it. Holy shit. Because, you know, <laughs> like, shirtless that, dudes famously not attractive <laughs> to anybody. Yeah, that, yeah. That's why the NYPD uh, or the the NYFD calendar is just like fully clothed men. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. So free, free the nipple, uh, gender equality in terms of bareness of breast uh, in all forms of media uh, in public, like, you know. It just seems like the obvious thing to fucking do. There's something about the fact that it, because it's seated in desire and sexualized bodies, it's also like seems hard to rally around as like an important topic. I don't know. There's something about the fact that but it, at some level, it just sort of feels like everyone wants to just let me just see a titty, right? That it doesn't feel like a serious political ask when, of course, it is because we just talked about how like it's state police repression against uh, you know feminine feminine coded bodies to like put a shirt on right and like that's obviously a bad idea i mean like when uh, different pieces of the body are clothed in other countries we consider that obvious naked state oppression hello saudi arabia right right but the fact that it's just like it can easily be reduced to like i want to see a titty that it doesn't it doesn't really like rank up there it seems like in a lot of political asks because you know, people are yeah. being killed yeah which is I, I don't agree with it but i i think that that's an interesting re I, I i think that is the reason why we've made so little progress on it and i think that that's weird and it also has all of these other spinoffs right so we have talked about the political implications of people not being allowed to breastfeed their children in public right <laughs> mm -hmm. um Wild. you also have uh and this is even happening with young girls in middle and high school being sent home if they're not wearing a bra yeah. uh, women not being allowed to go into the workplace without a bra on like it is so strange to me that any public institution can mandate what undergarments someone wears even when they're not showing their genitals, like just, you know, the the fact that, that it's unacceptable to go to work without a bra on or a 14 year old girl can be sent home because she's not wearing a bra at school. Yeah, the, the idea of just putting on a shirt is lewd based on some type of subjective analysis of like, do I see an areola? <laughs> like, like yeah. what the fuck? Like your breasts <laughs> are hanging a little low, ma'am. I'm going to need you to pick those bad boys up. <laughs> those are going to need to be center of chest. Like, like seven inches below the chin yeah. and it's a, formative. a little too low. Yeah. And just as a formative experience of like, you know, entering puberty or getting past some age, um, being like suddenly told like, all right, now you put a top on forever, forever. Yeah. Like, because your body is going to be sexualized by our society. And because it's se sexualized by our society, showing it is, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think of like the logic behind this at all. It's like, so that people aren't tempted to assault or rape. Is like that at all like going into this? I like, think it's also like some puritanical ideas yeah. of what thoughts it in like it's not even just to protect it, in fact it's not even primarily to protect women or feminine people from being assaulted it has nothing to do with that it has to do with the with the evil feminine sexual 
body and its control over men and the fact that it because like young girls who are often sent, you know, home for dress code violations and stuff, they're they're not it's never because like it's unsafe for you to be at school dressed like that. It's because you're distracting the boys in your class. What That's the, the reason fuck? that, you know, dress code is enforced on young women. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with breastfeeding in public, for example. Oftentimes, it's other women policing that behavior because they don't want their husbands to see a, another woman's breast in public. So it's not even like this is just a straightforward, you know, patriarchy from above oppression. Like it's something that is that has a deep seated history in the puritanical uh, morals and values of American society, which is that like women's bodies are dangerous, yeah. profane um, at least. Profane, which, which yeah. Is, is, the more I think about it, the more absurd it really it, it seems. And I remember there being an argument about why, like Christianity and like especially like puritanical Christianity and like even like the Catholic Church is like so obsessed with like sex. Like, as a, the taboo, like, the naughty thing, yeah. like, you know, like, as opposed to all the other sins that are, like, written about in the Bible and, like, you know, all the violences that you could do hypothetically or privations or exploitations of others. It's, like, the idea of, like, being horny and, like, having sex that isn't, like, condoned by, like, an authoritarian monarchical god or, like, the church or, like, some other type of thing is, like, really bad. I heard the argument that that was all done consciously to get the the breeding uh, rate up to like make, to make people more Catholics. Yeah, yeah to make people yeah. like actually just obsess about sex mm. instead of it just being a thing that's like in their life like everything else it's like the thing that's like bad and going to m make you literally burn in a lake of literal fire for literally ever. <laughs> You know, like that, that, that idea. And like, that's the kind of thing that like makes you go there. Right. It's like, right. like, you know, like naughty thoughts and like, you know, like fornication and like all this kind of stuff. And it seems like a breeding thing. Like, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, everything from like contemporary schools, putting down three fingers on a girl's shoulder to make sure that the top that they're wearing is appropriate. There's no spaghetti straps or everything falls apart. That and Chris, what you're talking about with like Catholics constraining sexual behavior to marriage, right? I think is all a direction or serves the purpose of directing desire to political and social control ends, right? So women can't free the titty because the titty is powerful. And if you free the titty everywhere, then it can't be used to sell you stuff to control, to police women's bodies, right? You need to be able to, control that desired thing so long as it is you have to first like keep the desire up and then control it and the way you do that is by directing when it can be shown and not or not right, right. and with sex and the catholic church it is absolutely no sex until you do this one ritual getting married and then you better have a shit ton of sex and make a lot of catholics <laughs> and never use a condom yeah Every sperm is sacred. Every sperm is sacred. Yeah, uh, I don't know. That's that's uh, that's that's how I see it. Yeah, but yeah, I I, I highly suggest folks check out Sasha Geffen's essay. Yeah. You can find it at reallifemag.com. You can listen to Sasha themselves read it. Um, we did. We wanted to have the author read this one because it's a very personal first person narrative from a from a you know transmasculine person. So that that felt very they did important a great job. too. And they did a really fantastic job. It's great. Um, it may be a little bit uh, intimidating for me that just anybody can read anything. I'm going to be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> 
right. You, uh, 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 well, you not heard, just anybody. You heard it here first, folks. Iron weeds against mass literacy. <laughs> <laughs> so there is this really pretty wild story of a Cohoes cop. So people are not familiar with the area. Cohoes is just across the uh, the river here. Stones throw. Yeah, just a stone's throw. If you're really good at throwing stones. Yeah. Because the uh, Hudson is pretty wide. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's a, it's smaller than Troy. It's, it's a fairly small town, but they have a mayor that is a former state trooper, I believe it was, or, or a sheriff or something like that. They're all the same. And he's taken a, a bit of mercy to one officer that has this very, very strange story about he thought he was being attacked by Antifa, or at least that was the story he made. Look, here's the thing. I was telling this Brittany this morning when we were, talk- we were talking about what to bring up, is that it has been endlessly tragic and entertaining at the same time to watch a group of people, i.e. cops, have to cover their tracks for the first time because no one had ever asked them to explain themselves ever right they're just right. like always always work with impunity just act an ass and and kill people and uh threaten them and just generally be uh, a terror to society whenever they want for whatever reason and now people just like ask simple questions like hey why are you shooting a gun out in the air at like two in the morning and they're like uh, uh antifa Yes, the way that this cop just throws out Antifa as a justification. So let okay, so let's actually get into the story of what he did. So, forty-six-year-old officer Sean T. McOwn, um, McOwned, <laughs> <laughs> nice, uh, called nine on June sixth. Called nine one one. This is an off-duty cop that called 911. Right. Okay. Uh, he told troopers that a black youth had displayed a gun and fired at him, which had prompted him to fire his weapon four times while retreating up a hill before ditching the pistol out of fear that the emptied gun would be used against him. I, yeah. <laughs> so so we, we've already run into some serious problems with this story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, also the, first, I just, when someone says they displayed a gun, the first thing I'm thinking of is like, like they were trying to sell it to him, you know, like a Cutco knife sort of thing. Like, look at this gun. And they're like, yeah. it's like in a nice presentation case. And they're like, look at the cart. I don't know anything about so guns. What but, he says, <laughs> but it's like, look at the pretty cartridge. He says that the black youth, uh, and this is where it's straight out of a fucking like serialized crime drama says that this black youth lifted his shirt to reveal a silver pistol tucked into his pants like you have just watched too many fucking movies dude you need to like relax with the fucking tropes it's a little too much but even even assuming you know devil's advocate here uh the devil is obviously the cop in this situation um but the the the, the situation where he were to have seen this happen what does he do next? He, he shoots. He pulls his gun. He runs back, like backwards, a- away <laughs> up a hill. Un- unloads his entire well, magazine. It says he shot. So this is another thing I don't understand: is that he says he sh- he shot four times and then discarded the empty pistol. Now I'm no expert on guns, but I believe the carrying capacity of most pistols is more than four. Yeah, most. Um. So where were the rest of the bullets? How many times did he actually fire? Like, there's just so much in the story that doesn't make any fucking sense. And also, like, this, I assume, is, like, his service pistol? Yeah, this was his department-issued pistol. And he just ditched it? 
Yeah. Because he was, <laughs> so, worried, he was worried about the, the, the Antifa people who were armed with a gun yeah. taking his empty gun <laughs> and then, like, I don't know, like, pistol whipping him with his empty gun. So the other thing is, he says take that take all he, the bullets out of their gun and put it in his better gun. Because, like, that's what you yeah, do in video I, games, I, right? Maybe. Like, do you just, like, ditch one gun, pick up another <laughs> You're one? You're like, yeah, that's what you do in Halo. You're like, yeah. oh, this is a, this one has a laser. Yeah. And then, so, then there's, um, some, there's some crates nearby, and he's going to open them and find, like, a med kit and, like, five, gun, <laughs> five guns and 16 ammo. And, like, it's going to be a problem. So the other weird thing is that he says he threw the gun away as if in a panic, right? Trying to hide it. But video surveillance shows that he very calmly and deliberately placed it on the ground. Which raises a whole new set of questions, like, so wait, why did he do that? Video? Can we get the video? So there is supposedly some surveillance video of part of the incident. I don't know that it's available to the public. Oh, I want, I want um, to see this. Yeah, I know, right? All right, we're going to get some foils going. Yeah, well, more on that later. So all of this happened at McCone's summer home, which is in Essex County. So this did not take place. It took place in Elizabethtown, not in Cohoes, but oh, he's a Cohoes cop, which is, cool. oh, I know, right? Yeah. The inner NIMBY. No, it's in his fucking summer home. Yeah, his <laughs> summer home. You know, because cops, as Bernie told us, are so underpaid. Like, they really just, you know, it's, they're it's, struggling yeah. out here. That's why they're beating and killing black black men is because they just, get the they need to be somehow. paid more. Yeah. So... McOwen allegedly told a, la- a neighbor he had suspected the young people of being in an Antifa group, went back inside and called 911. Um, McOwen would later admit that the story was false. He called state police and said, uh, state police, who described his various statements as, quote, extremely inconsistent. So it's now been seven weeks. McOwen has yet to face any discipline for the incident. He has not returned to work. He's instead out on sick leave and is going to be offered the chance to retire in August instead of having to face any disciplinary action. How long has he been on the force? So McOwen was hired in July of 2000. So 20 years. He says that the, these black youths with uh, guns tucked in their pants were al- also... He identified them as Antifa, which like, how? Well, they, <laughs> or they're just like walking, walking down the street, like doing like the jets, like snapping their fingers, <laughs> like walking down the street being like, Antifa, Antifa. What are we against? Fa. They were all waving three foot long black and red flags as they walked down the street. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing that is just like so that really like the cherry on top of all of this is that and this and Times Union got to love them. They totally bury the lead when police when troopers responded to his 911 call. They arrived at his summer home to find him asleep, reeking of alcohol and with bloodshot eyes. He reports that he does not remember calling 911. And saying that. So you have a cop who gets blackout drunk in Elizabethtown, harasses some young black kids, fires four shots at them, throws his p- gun away, just leaves it outside, and then goes back home and sleeps it off. And now, guess what? He gets to have a nice early retirement with his pension and his lifelong health insurance and all of the perks that come from, you know, being state sanctioned murderer. And, you know, also, we should also, while we're throwing out, blame uh fucking times union the photos that you have of this guy <laughs> are him getting awards mm-hmm. uh for uh and and him like replacing his canine with a newer younger canine which i'm sure he probably does 
with all the bitches in his wi- life. Oh, hey, very oh. nicely done. Nicely done. Um, but yeah, I was just like, like, come on, like, get a picture of him blackout drunk. Get a like, get a still <laughs> from that video that you claim to have seen. Oh. Or you know, you, like, know, you just don't have to have pictures of him. Yeah, like, like I can it's read. It's fine words. to not have pictures of him. Yeah. Unlike Brittany, I'm okay with there being mass literacy and people <laughs> just reading. <laughs> Fuck you! And this is this Don't is why pictures. the solution is not more training because more training would not have kept this man from getting blackout drunk in his summer home, going out with his armed like service pistol, getting afraid of some young black teenagers, opening fire on them. What it would have done is when he was blackout drunk and opening fire, he would have been better at hitting center mass and. What training could you give a cop that was going to do that? Or 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 the training or the training a different kind of training, he would this exact same thing would happen and he'd reach the user and he'd be like, I understand that I have implicit biases that I am gonna shoot you now. <laughs> so like, yeah. like, like he would have read, read some white fragility, and he's like, "I feel really uh, bad about this," and yeah. then and then hit. There's nothing mass. I can do. <laughs> Like, it's not, uh, yeah, there's no training that's going to, one, keep cops from having summer homes when everyone else is losing their job. Like, no training is going to help that. Two, their job is still, you know, maintain the color line and protect the wealthiest property. No amount of training is going to help make that happen less. And training, even a lot of training, isn't going to undo decades of not just like group culture but like these are like families that have been in these police departments for generations so it's right. also their entire family like the Kamatal family in troy goes back like four generations of utter shitbags it's, it's a whole entire family of of merciless killers and Dude, like I, i'm like, still traumatized from hearing about the torture yeah that this man experienced so, uh, we talked about it like months and months we ago we talked about it a couple of times yeah yeah, yeah. it's just yeah, like so, so it's like no there's no training unless you get that it's gonna do any of this you know fix any of this okay so i've got a technocratic fix that oh, i good. think okay that i think should be able to be acceptable to everybody all right breathalyzers on all cop guns. Ooh, yeah. So okay. every cop, before they murder somebody, has to at least prove that they're not blackout at the time that they're going to murder that person. I don't know. That seems pretty restrictive. Because, like, what if the cop happened to walk through a cloud of alcohol vapors at a time when an Antifa is taking a rocket launcher out of their suspicious backpack and aiming it at the cop. And now because the cop happened to walk through a cloud of alcohol vapor, which as we all know is naturally occurring in many regions. Well, it's COVID, you know, uh, people spraying. So, people spraying. you know, and now that officer's dead, thanks to you. And this overly restrictive anti-police legislation that you, that you're proposing. I don't know. I just think it goes too far. I think it goes too far to put breathalyzers on guns. I think what we should actually do is turn cops' mouths into guns, and then they can't... <laughs> I spit on fire! <laughs> oh. oh, no, you're just gonna get Antifa spiking their milkshakes. You know? So oh my god, that's totally true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. McDonald's is gonna be spiking their coffee to try to uh, yeah. keep cops from being able to defend themselves you could put quick crete and uh and southern comfort 
in their, <laughs> in their Duncan Coolatas. Yeah, that sounds tight. Yeah. Not the quick creep part, but I could definitely put some SoCo in a Coolata. Oh, man. I just, I, I want to see that footage. Uh, so I guess we'd have to figure out what the jurisdiction is in what's the town that this happened in? Elizabethtown. Elizabethtown. We'll have to write to I don't the think, I think it was private surveillance footage. So oh, I don't we could think probably that get it, was... it then. But unless, Why? Like, it, unless the private uh, surveillance footage was like, you know, they were like really pro cop or something, they'd probably be like, yeah, dude, look at this fucking doofus. <laughs> he unloads his pistol and then like places it on the ground nervously and like escapes <laughs> and like runs in a zigzag pattern back to his house, like, like burping and farting. And, you know. <laughs> so the security video was from a neighbor's home. After reviewing security video from a neighbor's home, troopers told McGone their investigation showed that his weapon had been neatly laid down, not ditched in a panic. <laughs> As their questioning continued, McGone allegedly asked the troopers why they were trying to, quote, jam him up. <laughs> you break hey, why are you trying to why are you trying to jam me up over this? <laughs> what? So I shot at some fucking antifas. I was drunk. What? You got you guys knows about how that goes. <laughs> yeah, remember remember when uh that FBI agent did a backflip in a club like and, and fucking it, his gun went off. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. shot somebody. Yeah, yeah. that see, ruled. See, having smart guns with breathalyzer technology would have kept that woman from getting shot in the leg. And you know, I don't know in terms of harm prevention. Seems like low-hanging fruit. I mean, I just think you're gonna you're trying to get cops killed, and I don't know why you hate the troops so much. So the the <laughs> I, as as I mentioned earlier, the mayor of Cohoes is a, a former state police officer, having served over thirty years as a state trooper before becoming mayor of Cohoes, and he told the Times Union that quote the incident under investigation involved alleged behavior unbecoming of a police officer, if proven true. And in combination with a highly publicized DWI arrest two years ago, that's something else we didn't talk about. Yeah. Uh, I would not, I would not entertain the idea of that officer patrolling the streets of Cohoes again. So this is like, like double cop speak. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. He just like instantly went into cop speak and talk about the alleged, if the alleged behavior did take place, then that individual, I would not entertain the possibility of that individual doing his job, whatever that may be alleged to be, you know. It was like, uh, um, I mean, the, the, but, the, but the, the core is, of the logic is good, yeah. Like, which of is course, to say, yeah. he shouldn't be armed and patrolling communities both while on the job and off the job because he's an alcoholic that has like proven himself to be a public liability on multiple occasions. In and what's incredible, force. what's incredible is that thirty-year veteran cop said something worse about cops than our own Patrick Madden has ever said. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, that, like yeah. he would, like, Patrick Madden would never, ever say anything about how any officer did anything unbecoming of a police officer. He didn't really say anything when Dominic Comital was in the back of some other police cruiser saying, like, you should be in the Troy PD because you can slap people around. He so, said yeah. that, and he yeah. didn't say anything about that. One thing that's funny and that probably makes me feel like McOwn just went into an absolute blind drunk rage is that... This is from the article. The two males and a woman in the group whom McGone approached spoke to state police. People with knowledge of the case said they said McGone had asked them where they were staying and other questions they did not want to answer. They later heard him on the phone describing what they were wearing. They said they did not feel threatened by McGone or see his weapon, but did feel harassed. They did not want to press charges. So what I'm imagining happening in my head is him belligerently 
slurring, where are you guys doing my neighborhood? Because he told them they needed to leave his neighborhood. Um, and they probably laughed at him because he was probably funny and drunk and not really very scary to him. And that, as we so often know, happens with cops, sent him into a blind rage. Because they, what's the old quote? I can't even remember who it's from, but like, uh, you know, there are two different conceptions of respect. One is I want you to treat me as a human being. And one is I want you to treat me as an authority. Um, and so, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. and so if I don't feel that you're showing me respect, your refusal to treat me as an authority means I will not, re- will treat you as a human being. Mm. Um, and I, and I wonder, like, I can see that being the dynamic that create that co- not that cops need an excuse, but I can just see that like being what tips him over into this, what was probably quite hilarious bumbling um shooting and then leaving your gun and then going home to sleep it off yeah so yeah. did any of the people uh make any comment as to where he was shooting the gun like i haven't it, seen that i mean I, the, nobody was hit so so maybe he just like got pissed went up the hill and was just like pulled out his gun and fired it into the ground and was like oh shit i'm going to get caught and he like said put that it down he, and walked away he said that he fired it into a tree trunk just to try to scare them off but and i don't know if any ballistics evidence has come out of whether or not that's the case but the thing is just like he's given so many different stories of the event and it's obvious he just doesn't remember it you know, like whomst among us does not have a, 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 a brownout where you maybe remember firing your gun, but you're not quite sure where. <laughs> I mean, that happens to me pro- once or twice a month. You, you know, to be completely honest, like the first night I ever uh, was drinking alcohol after becoming a firearm owner, I was like a little freaked out. I was like, I don't feel like I should be able to have access to guns when I'm like drunk. And what so, you need is to get a gun safe, but yeah. it's like those, um, you ever have those apps that make you do basic math before you're allowed to use your phone yeah, and it's yeah. for like drunk people. Yeah. The problem um, is I'm like really good at math even when I'm drunk. <laughs> so then you need it to be something that you're not Anagrams. like, like a word problem yeah. or something that like would be hard for you to do when you're drunk. And then that's just your gun safe. Yeah. That would be, that'd be a really good, uh, strategy. It's like, but then you have to also, you know, I don't know. It's like, I've never owned firearms with the idea of like thinking that i was going to like protect myself from a home invasion like in real time like the idea of a gun safe and like being a a reasonable firearm uh, owner is like unless i think that that's a legitimate threat because i've been like i don't know threatened by someone who says i'm going to come into your house at night and kill you i'm probably not going to like have a loaded firearm like ready to rock (laughs) like you know like i'm sure a lot of gun owners do you know, like oh, that, most, that, I would bet, yeah. That, that's sort of the fantasy that drives it all. I mean, I won't say who, but I know of some folks who have, like, multiple handguns in and, like, their quick, house. Quick dis- in, deploy yeah, t- yeah. tactical yeah. <laughs> guards and mounts next to their bed and shit. Yeah, no, I uh, sleepwalk sometimes. Like, you know, I'll get up and go pee and, like, not even really know that I'm awake or asleep, like, and get back into bed, like, that kind of thing. The idea of having a gun, like, ready to rock is pretty terrifying. We keep a, uh, we keep an old stairway spindle, uh, next to our bed. There you go. Next to David's side of the bed. So that he can, got a good old stick. So that he can ineffectually swat at someone who breaks into our home. Oh, I'm sure. Which I'm sure will happen because we live in the notoriously dangerous suburb of East Side. I'm sure David would very (laughs) effectually swat at someone who came through your home. See, you could jam them. Yeah, that's really really what you gotta do. Yeah, Yeah, you gotta jab them. Yeah. Try to aim for the eyes. Or the dick. Or the dick. Or, or the, the dick. vagina. Or the vagina. Or the Ken doll-like, you know, smooth crotch of whatever yeah. person tries to steal from us. Imagine if you <laughs> fucked up so bad at your job 
that you essentially should have been fired on the spot, but instead of being fired, they like are going to make you a cake and like give you a retirement. retirement. So, <laughs> like, you know, part of this, is, this is where we have to talk about police unions, right? Yeah. And, and there was a time years ago when I, when maybe my politics were a little bit less nuanced and I thought that any conversation about shutting down police unions was inherently anti-left because you know, and I, I do still worry about like how that can creep into a broader trend of anti-unionism that will affect other state employees and et cetera. But mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the reason that this is like, even if this mayor were the most like Antifa, anti-cop BLM like mayor in which the country, not, yeah. which he's not, but even if he was, his hands would still be tied because the cop union has made it nearly impossible for a city to just outright fire a police officer, even for really egregious failures or, or you know, in this case, it's essentially a crime. Mm. Um, it's just you open yourself up to so many lawsuits from like he literally says in this piece, look, this is the cheapest option is to let <laughs> him retire, because if he and the PBA countersues the city or not countersues, sues the city for yeah. wrongful termination, that can be millions of dollars the city now has to spend. Yeah. I love how city authorities are suddenly like frugal when it comes to like not holding their cops accountable <laughs> for murder, but then at the same time are like, oh yeah, we can do pilots. Yeah. You know, c- come on. Yeah. We'll g- get a little palm grease going, you know, yeah. little cops. Do you want a tank? Go get it. Go get yourself a tank. Treat, Treat your- yourself. Treat yourself. Yeah. So. See any good TikToks lately? The TikTok apocalypse is finally coming for us <laughs> all. TikTok apocalypse. It was a matter of time. It, it's TikTokalypse, right? TikTokalypse. Yeah, sure, right? yeah, I like that. So yeah, Trump threatened uh, last week to ban TikTok in the United States. He's been doing it several times, right? He has, and, and now yeah. he's just like as early as yesterday was, I think, the last... Uh, he said Friday or Saturday he was going to take action to ban it. He said this to journalists on Air Force One, which is just like so emblematic of how Trump like and his administration operates, where he's just like sitting on the shitter tweeting at 3 a.m. And now he's like just, you know, walking down the aisles of Air Force One being like, you know what, this TikTok thing, we got to it's it's nasty. It's net. Bye bye. Nasty. You'd think that he just dominate it. Like he dominates Twitter and all all the rest of the social media that he just get on it and be like, do the dab a couple times and be like, fake news, (laughs) gang. It's just him him in the bathroom holding something. And he's like, let me tell you something about Nancy Pelosi. She's very nasty. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's just that he can't dance and that's why he hates TikTok so much. He's always doing like the Michael Jackson, like thriller, like leaning forward on on his ankles move though it's because he's wearing the lifts oh yeah that's what people say i don't know i don't know why he needs to wear lifts. he's he's like like, some type of dark aura that's like counterbalancing his center of gravity people say he looks like a centaur with no back legs have you ever seen a picture of trump next to a picture of a centaur (laughs) like he stands like a he's the way he stands he looks like he's missing the back half of his centaur body maybe he just has a completely invisible but like material reality like velociraptor tail that's like out the back. Well, if like, that was the case, Melania wouldn't be able to sadly plot along right behind him oh, and all yeah, the pictures of them taken together. Well, debunked. Ma- maybe his adult. <laughs> maybe his adult diaper has Kevlar. Is like made out of Kevlar. Oh, it's super heavy. It's super ableist for you to be making fun of Trump wearing a diaper. I'm okay, just well, I'm gonna you keep right doing now. it. So you're hashtag canceled. Cool. You're off the pod. I, yeah, uh, gastronormative uh, ableism is fucking. 
<laughs> not acceptable. Not acceptable. In this discourse. I'm not shaming him for him. I'm trying to find an explanation for why he stands like that. Fair. Okay, yeah. And, and In if, that case, it's liberatory and I support you. I yeah, there, there we go. And so, like, if, if it's a really heavy diaper, especially in the dumper region, you know, then it's going to, like, it's going to be so heavy. Can we not call it a dumper? I'm going to call it a dumper. I know I've said this on the podcast before, but I am extremely opposed to the use of the word dumper in really any context. Donald John Trump's dumper. Don't, no. It's, I hate it so much. Is is super dense. Gross. And it's actually thick and like juicy. That. I don't know if you guys have seen the photos of him in tennis shorts, but he <laughs> has a thick and juicy dumper. <laughs> okay, now excuse me while I go uh, go to the bathroom and just die. B- vomit this boxed rosé that I've been drinking since 11 a.m. So the ostensible reason for Donald Trump wanting to ban TikTok is because the China harvesting our data. And which like, so already all U.S. date, all data from U.S. TikTok accounts is stored in the United States, from what I understand. That's what's been reported. But like, what are the what are the odds that that's Trump's actual reason and not just that teens are being mean about him on TikTok? And that and, he like, can't break fun into of, the platform. And that like he doesn't understand how to be good at TikTok. Like, he probably has some account somewhere that's, like, private that hasn't been made. But he's just, it's like him trying to do the renegade dance. And he's just, like, terrible at it. And he's, like. Baron's, like, coaching him. There's, like, a, a montage where he's, like, slowly. <laughs> <laughs> this idea that TikTok is the way is China's, like, you know, into collecting Americans' horse. data is, is, like, a little absurd to me. But so China's Byte Dance, which is the. Parent company. The parent company of TikTok the has... The alphabet to Google? Yes. Has agreed to divest itself of uh, U.S. operations of TikTok in a bid to save a deal with the White House. They would hand it over to Microsoft. They're going to hand it over to Microsoft, So TikTok yeah. can become like LinkedIn. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah. That won't yeah. fucking ruin it. Right. So I want to go back to the thing about data collection okay yeah. right because I, I i think it might actually be possible that that's what's happening though at the same time every company does that all the time oh, yeah. both for their national and corporate interests oh, yeah. right mm-hmm. and like russia has already made a, a a rule that all russian citizen data has to be stored on servers within the nation of russia yeah so, like they've already done that but that I was think already China happening does right yeah, yeah. okay and, and American firms don't necessarily have that, don't, you know, don't ask for that. But that's mainly, you know, because like we're the center of that uh, or, you know, we've been uh, unlikely. We that already we will store stay. most of that stuff. Here, yeah, yeah, we will stay. You know, like we, we store a lot of that stuff in U.S. servers, but also all over the world because that's big dick energy. Uh, but um, I hate big dick energy. <laughs> it's empire, baby. I don't yeah. like it. Empire energy. There's nothing like don't yeah. dick shame nations and colonizing forces. <laughs> So I, I, I do. <laughs> Sorry. Jesus Christ. So I, um, I do think it, you know, this is like sort of this like data nationalism that is mm-hmm. like, it's like the latest step in a lot of uh, instances that I think started with Russia's decision to keep all of their people's information w- within their borders. But I think we're, we're seeing that more and more that folks that, you know, um, uh, that different countries want to, um, hold their their people's data for uh, longer and it's not just it is not because like donald trump is concerned that china will be spying on us and 
uh, individ- as individuals, and he's trying to protect our individual liberties from another nation. It's because other nations spy on each other all the time using this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, American academics, this was, like, only a couple weeks ago, American academics were able to spy on Russian military installations using merchant data and cell phone data. Like, they're just able to know, like, how many, at least how many people are there and where the base is just based on GPS data sent from from phones and, and cell towers and huh. and stuff like that. So, like, I, they're, I think they're mostly concerned about, about stuff like stuff like that or like remember um it was like two years ago that that uh fitness company strava had a, a service where like you could watch they would give you a geo map and there was like a worldwide map of all the strava users running around and and, and you could give them then you uh, go down into like somalia and mogadishu and find all of our black sites and like all of the army dudes like running laps around oh, military wow, installations <laughs> and you're like why is there like an american in mogadishu running in a perfect rectangle and it's, it's because i'm running around a base fucking hilarious <laughs> yeah uh, man that is an unforced error right yeah there. We, we had a theorizing the web presentation about that from uh matt sakelik did that oh yeah cool. but um i i, I think all of that is is a, is at play here they are legitimately concerned that you know, through TikTok, and it is a legitimate concern that through TikTok or some backdoor that TikTok allows for or whatever, like we could be spied on. Well, the Pentagon already that. banned it on any military, active military person's phones, yeah. um, probably learning the lessons from the from jo- what, black, from what we black did site to Russia. joggers. Yeah, or um, from what we did to Russia like a yeah. couple weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. It's a lot of people are talking about it as a free speech issue and whether or not like it. Like it's constitutionally acceptable for the president to ban a platform like that, but I, but I actually think it's the more interesting way to approach it is like how data and culture are, are all wrapped up in each other, and this like fear of us being being subjected to what we have subjected other nations to for so many decades and you know frankly centuries. I mean, he hasn't even confirmed that this move will be sufficient for him to not ban TikTok. I think that that'll be very telling whether he accepts this as good enough, enough, like yeah. good enough for him to not want to go forward with this. I mean, this is all just about the fact that the data is power. And, you know, right. like the NSA has spies on every American and, you know, every non-American. And that, you know, like we, just because we have the data, quote unquote, stored on, you know, on our our land <laughs> like right <laughs> this is the internet you know that, like unless there's going to be some type of firewall where chinese viewers won't be able to access that data even from like watching the streams and be able to mine them or whatever doesn't just because you have a copy of it here doesn't keep someone else from being able to have a copy of it there and that's the case everywhere in the world and so like you know there's no interest by this administration or the previous two, three administrations on doing anything in terms of like consumer privacy advocacy, even though data privacy is like wildly popular with Democrats, Republicans, like Mm -hmm. the American people want it. They want to have the NSA stop spying on them. They want, you know, all of the signals, intelligence um, gathering of Americans data that was revealed by Edward Snowden to be officially undone. Like they're not like, then again, they're not as mad about it as I would have expected. But, like, at the same time, it's wildly unpopular to be spied on. Um, but that's not even what's being talked about here. This is simply saying, like, no, 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 no. We're not going to, like, let someone else 
profit off of the mass mining in, in eyeballs of all of this data, like that's going to be for us and our corporations. Yeah. I yeah. think that that's yeah. probably a huge part of it is not even so much worrying about being spied on by other nations, but giving like just relinquishing a huge amount of data to another country's private entity when like, no, our private, like American yeah. private entities should be trafficking and, and like, you know, it's reaping, reaping the, yeah. yeah, exactly. But, but it's put through an ideological lens because there's like this weird, like cold war gear up with conflict with China. So they're like, they always refer to China as the common, like the CCP or whatever, like the Chinese communist party. Mm -hmm. And like, We've, I know that this has been going on a lot on the internet, so please forgive me. I haven't been paying a lot of attention to this on Twitter, but I don't understand China like at all, really. And I certainly don't understand how they could be communist because don't they have like 373 billionaires? Don't they have like largely a like privately controlled capitalist economy that dominates the majority for the benefit of the few? Like, well, and this was a direct result of the so-called opening up of China, where, you know, there was incre like increasing space in the economy for private, like, cause, you know, there was a time in China. And, and look, I am the exact opposite of an expert on anything to do with China. Um, but I believe that there was a period in time after the communist revolution where most of the most business was state owned. Yeah. Um, and then there was the so-called opening up of China's economy to capitalist private industry. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. The problem is that like, when we talk about communism in the West, we're basing it on Western philosophy and sociology and political science. And those are our conceptions of communism and Marxism and so and Leninism and all but, these or, things. But Maoism, for example, is, but is, like how many Western leftists know a ton about like Maoism? I don't, I mean, I don't like, yeah. and, it, and a lot of those ideas just don't translate well because like East Asian culture is so radically different than Western culture. I, I, I think it's quite likely that, or you can make a, a fairly robust argument to saying that, I mean, Marxism and Leninism, Marxist-Leninism requires that you have a period of capitalism to... As like uh, a transitionary phase? Yeah, yeah. It is is one revolution that you need to do before you get to the socialist revolution, is you need to have a bourgeois revolution that could arguably have ha have happened around 2002 when they did all the opening up that Brittany was talking about. And, uh, and now, uh, yeah, you can look at like, uh, these graphs of like state owned businesses versus like privately owned ones. And it just like falls off a cliff. It happens very, very quickly. Yeah. And now you, you do need to have those billionaires and create that wealth accumulation because it is insanely productive. Uh, it, it kills people and it's, and it's, you know, destroys the psyche but it is the only way to then build up to then turn into a dictatorship of the proletariat or something so i mean like there could be an argument to be made that you know a communist nation needs to go through capitalism for a while so my understanding on the whole need to go into capitalism as a stage toward communism was so you could have like a dictatorship of the proletariat and in the sense of transitioning from like a peasant society to one that had an industrial working class, you, you know, capitalism was, was like the way to get there. But I think China got to that point a long time ago. 
And, uh, and I don't know if, 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 how I don't once again, really know much about the history of China. And I'm going to be trying to do some research because China is going to be very relevant in our futures. And like yeah. understanding it is something that like, I'm incredibly embarrassed about how little I know about. It. I mean, I think you're far from alone in terms of American leftists not knowing yeah. much about China. But like, I just don't understand how a, a society that's being like, described from the West as a communist, you know, a country can have 373 billionaires. Like it, that just seems antithetical to communism in, in its most basic like understanding. Uh, and I don't know. I posted a, uh, a, a little poll on Twitter uh, a couple right. weeks back that said, you know, America's got, I think it's like 700 and some odd billionaires and China's got 373 billionaires. In your opinion, which country is more likely in the course of the 21st century to dispossess its billionaire class and like overthrow them. And to my surprise, most people said America. Yeah. And I think that it was sort of an interesting, you know, mental exercise for myself because on one hand, we're like the most ideologically against the idea of dispossessing the billionaire class as far as like the rest of the world is even concerned. I think that we in, in America at least seemingly believe that the ability of individuals to straight up just like dominate and own entire industries is like sacrosanct and right. it's, it's weird, but we also are like armed. Like we have a lot of small arms in this country. So the idea of like there being some type of, I don't know, insurrection that would get out of the hands of even our extremely massive military could happen. And maybe it takes on, you know, a anti-billionaire socialist lens, like probably wouldn't. But, you know, like I just... Stranger I, things have happened. Yeah, I, I think that the primary reason that I, I ended up actually saying uh, that China would, because I think that they have like a lot more social cohesion, but that's just like looking into something that's somewhat opaque from like half a dozen friends of mine or coworkers that have like lived in China and like I've been mm -hmm. able to talk to them is that they have like more of a sense culturally of like taking care of one another and like an ethic toward that. So China um, was actually agrarian up until uh, the 21st century, the beginning of the 21st century. They only just tipped over to 50% or more urbanized in like 2004 or five or oh, something. Oh, shit. Yeah. So they were still mostly a peasant country for a very long time. It was only once they really fully opened up and they started selling you know, like everything that was in the ground to the United States and then like creating a, an enormous middle class very fast that... Um, and a manufacturing economy. And a manufacturing economy that, that you do get a... a, a a rapid proletarianization of China that only happened after it opened. It happened exactly the way I think Marx would say that it would is that, you know, you, you could have a, a, a socialist revolution, but you're not going to get to communism without going through capitalism. So if I, if I were president Xi Jinping in his infinite glory and wisdom, I, I would be thinking, you know, like you look at the Soviet union who thought they could skip capitalism and instead, they created basically state-run capitalism, right? And to outcompete the United States, and they couldn't, mostly because of consumer goods. They didn't produce like nearly enough consumer goods. And China's done the exact opposite, you know, where they've they go through a very strong capitalist phase, and it's almost entirely built on consumer goods. But then they also have taken that money and parlayed it into an extremely robust infrastructure program. And setting up all these institutions to 
compete with American foreign influence institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. So, but that that doesn't tell me which one will overthrow their billionaires yeah, first. Yeah. You know, if you had to take a stab at it, what would you say? Yeah, I um, I would say the United States only because uh, someone else will topple us. <laughs> I mean, here's my take, and here's where I'll out myself as truly an internationalist. I don't think either can do it without the other doing it. Fair, fair. Our economies are far too intertwined, and having a billionaire class in one, we are the two largest economies in the world. One of us having a billionaire class and the other not would change the dynamics of our trade and our economic hegemony in the world so drastically that I don't really see that being possible in one place and not another. Um, this is why you have to have an international proletarian movement, uh, because like it, the, these borders, they're they're so fungible. Like yeah. we don't have national economies in in a way that like makes any sense for a proletarian, di- you know, dictatorship of the proletariat in major Western country. You know, like this whole internationalist bleeding into anarchist, like thing has been a question for the, the last several years in my own head because i completely agree with you i think that the uh, international economy is such that it's so intertwined that if there was ever to be any type of like actual change of mode of production or at least like ownership and and uh, distribution of the um the wealth produced by that that it would have to happen internationally but like what does that what does that mean that means like no more nation states right like or maybe one big nation state, like the whole world. And you're one like, world a, government, yeah, yeah, like a true full throated, like globalist argument of like a global, you know, government that, you know, ties everybody together. The, the nature of rebellion and insurrection and movements and things is to have it sort of happen in particular spots, like stochastically in sort of like a popcorning type of effect. Yeah. And the idea of that ever suddenly manifesting into like a above ground global proletarian uh revolutionary party or organization that's like truly international in its scope and scale just it would be jaw-dropping if it were to happen and well, i can't and I, really like, imagine how it probably it would can't be international bring... as in every single working person in the world but rather international insofar as like the working classes of the major powers in the world will have to be on roughly the same pace headed towards revolution it's like britain as, guess, u.s like brazil russia india china yeah. united states um like and know. a lot of it will depend on how reformist we go in the next few years um you know are we going to get any kind of relief for like like our, our gdp just shrunk by what a record 30 something percent in Hell the last yeah. quarter like we're Stumps about to fall up, <laughs> off a fucking cliff the the, the point being like we, we're on the pre- precipice of absolute falling off a cliff levels of bad economy so you know the next uh next couple of years gonna be a wild ride yeah yeah i agree with you i also think you you had a good point about how tied together our economies are and uh I, I think i brought it up before but i had heard some idea of uh the u.s and uh chinese private uh and state interests essentially just like officially merging in some type of like you know whether it be a pact or whatever to be able to maintain control and like the you know increasing um severity of these uh ongoing crises yeah wildflower wildflower yay
One cool thing that's been happening all across New York State is that now that uh, the legislature passed and Amazon Cuomo signed, the repeal of 50A of the New York Civil Rights Act meant that now you can FOIL request disciplinary records of police officers. Before that, they were immune from freedom of information law requests. So now you can do it. Several cities like Kingston, Rochester, uh, Syracuse, New York City is trying and the PBA is suing to keep them closed, a bunch of stuff like that. But um, uh, a lot of cities are now like making it very easy to get these disciplinary records now. Troy is absolutely not one of them. You know, despite 11,000 people showing up in the streets and dozens, I think it was something like 60 something letters being sent to uh, the council and the mayor's office trying to get just some kind of transparency and then maybe leading to accountability for the police department, you know, like just cold shoulder, absolutely do, do not care. So um, the Troy branch of the Capital District Democratic Socialists of America, of which I think all of us are dues paying members, have put out several FOIL requests, a total of 24. I think there might actually be now a 25th one that we threw in late last week. But they're asking for... We, we are asking for <laughs> interdisciplinary records of some of the worst offenders, like the, the cops that keep showing up in the newspaper for having used some pretty disgusting levels of, uh, of force. Uh, shout out Jared Eiler, who once uh, attacked someone over the administration of a Facebook page. That's true. The city ended up paying like $30,000 in restitution for that. We're also looking for uh, the Rinaldi memo. Uh, uh, we, we've talked about many times on the pod that would tell us more about what, how Randall French handled uh, the murder of Ed Thevenin. All use of force data from the last decade, overtime and compensatory time expenses over the decade, the amount of money spent on legal settlements with victims of police brutality and excessive force. It sucks that we have to go this route because there's been a ton of other cities bigger than us who have said like, okay, this is now repealed. Here is how you can take advantage of this of this new law and learn about the police department that you pay for. But Troy is not doing that. So now we have to kind of yank it out of them. What's totally wild to me is that like in any just society, these things would be, there would be a link on the fucking city's website to like, here's what our cops have been doing wrong. Like if you imagine what a, if you were to try what to conceive... they've been doing right, even. Yeah, <laughs> like, sure. Here you go. Like, if you were to try to conceive of a just society that had police, which, good luck to you, but if you were to do that, like, you would think that a very basic element of that world would be disciplinary records of all public servants, whether you're a congressional representative or a mayor or a city council member or anything like that, that there should be basic transparency of who our both our representatives and our peacekeepers and all of these things that that should be publicly available. I don't think that like you need to know every single thing about a cop's life, but certainly everything that that cop has done while on the job that is suspect should be freely available, should be prominently displayed. Like we live in the information age. There's no reason that a that a city can't put on their website basic information that's in the public interest. Meanwhile, you can't even figure out if you need a fucking permit to rebuild your porch because the city of Troy's website is so goddamn shitty. But there's just no good reason to not have this information publicly available. Yeah. So now we we have to do it not by force, but probably, you know, like the most aggressive way that is still legal, um, which is, uh, you know, doing a ton of paperwork. And we're, st and, you know, we're still going to wait to hear back from they have 
seven days, I think, or five, five, uh, five working days, something like that, to uh, respond uh, to the requests, at which point they can either fulfill them, give us a timeline for when they will fulfill them, or give us a written response as to why they will not fill these requests. So if they say, if they do that last one, then that starts essentially a legal process that we would have to try to just take go them to court. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, like we don't have any money to do that. I, I don't think, but you know, I don't. I to be honest, I I, I uh, do not know what uh, would happen if that third option uh, happened. And I, and I really hope that you know the the Troy police uh, and the the uh, city hall like do the legal thing. The obviously blatantly like you know above board uh legal you know they, they they follow the law and release these records because that's that's the law now and uh and if they don't then they're you know by virtue of that they're breaking the law and they're doing they're breaking the law to protect their own police officers which yeah. is just you know double double speak it's ridiculous Cool. Well, big ups to DSA for putting in. I know that was like a lot of time to yeah, compile the names of these known offenders. And David, I think you did some of that work. I remember like just basically yeah. pouring over headlines for the last 20 years, figuring out which cops are, you know, the most violent. Um, so, yeah, very cool. And that's that's the kind of work that, you know, organizations like DSA can do that is that has you know, that's really just about putting in the time and the work. It's not something that requires a ton of money. It's not something that requires a ton of resources. It just requires like informed citizens who care about their communities putting in the time to do it. So thank you to all of the uh, DSA folks who made that happen. We stand. We stand. All right. Uh, this week's Lenin will be the in the beginning of chapter two, which is going to talk about some of the shit that was boiling down around the 1848 revolutions. You know, the 1848 to 1851 was this time of like massive revolutions all throughout Europe. Most of them did not amount to much other than an incredibly repressive re- response from the state. But it did lead to some more kind of revolutionary spirit among the working classes. That's the time that Marx is starting to write a lot of his stuff. So. Lenin's going to take us through um, what, you know, we spent most of chapter one arguing that the the state that withers away is not the bourgeois state. That must be overturned. What withers away is ultimately the dictatorship of the proletariat. And this is Lenin's argument, read these kind of social revolutionaries who say, you know, who are basically arguing for basic labor reforms, kind of the same shit that like democratic socialists are doing in the United States now, right? And so chapter two is going to introduce us to uh, basically Marx's arguments for like the process of, you know, the the bourgeois revolution and then the the upcoming proletariat revolution. So it'll be a nice primer. It'll relate to some of the stuff we talked about today. I think it'll set us up nicely for the rest of these conversations about like what, like actually drilling down into what makes a left movement Marxist or not Marxist. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Hell yeah. Thanks for making it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. You can uh, find us on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Oh, we're we not, should. We're not it's, cool you know, enough. The, the thing with TikTok is that it's like time consuming to make good TikTok. So, yeah. Um, but you can find us on Twitter. Ironweeds Pod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweeds Pod. You can shoot us an email at Ironweeds Pod. At, at gmail.com. Uh, thanks so much to our patrons. Patreon.com slash Ironweeds. Uh, And I think that's it. Yep. Okay. We love you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peace. Chapter 2. The Experience of 1848-51. to Part 1. 
The Eve of Revolution The first works of mature Marxism, The Poverty of Philosophy and the Communist Manifesto, appeared just on the eve of the Revolution of 1848. For this reason, in addition to presenting the general principles of Marxism, they reflect to a certain degree the concrete revolutionary situation of the time. It will, therefore, be more expedient, perhaps, to examine what the authors of these works said about the state immediately before they drew conclusions from the experience of the years 1848-51. to 51. In The Poverty of Philosophy, Marx wrote, quote, The working class, in the course of development, will substitute for the old bourgeois society an association which will preclude classes and their antagonism, and there will be no more political power groups, since the political power is precisely the official expression of class antagonism in bourgeois society. End quote. It is instructive to compare this general exposition of the idea of the state disappearing after the abolition of classes with the exposition contained in the Communist Manifesto, written by Marx and Engels a few months later in November 1847, to be exact. Quote, in depicting the most general phases of the development of the proletariat, we traced the more or less veiled civil war raging within existing society up to the point where that war breaks out into open revolution and where the violent overthrow of the bourgeoisie lays the foundation for the sway of the proletariat. We have seen above that the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of the ruling class to win the battle of democracy. The proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest, by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie, to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e., of the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. End quote. Here we have a formulation of one of the most remarkable and most important ideas of Marxism on the subject of the state, namely, the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, as Marx and Engels began to call it after the Paris Commune, and also a highly interesting definition of the state, which is also one of the forgotten words of Marxism. The state, i.e. the proletariat organized as the ruling class. This definition of the state has never been explained in the prevailing propaganda and agitation literature of the official social democratic parties. More than that, it has been deliberately ignored, for it is absolutely irreconcilable with reformism, and is a slap in the face for the common opportunist prejudices and Philistine illusions about the peaceful development of democracy. The proletariat needs the state. This is repeated by all the opportunists, social chauvinists, and Kotskyites, who assure us that this is what Marx taught. But they forget to add that, in the first place, according to Marx, the proletariat needs only a state which is withering away, i.e. a state so constituted that it begins to wither away immediately, and cannot but wither away. And, secondly, the working people need a state, i.e. the proletariat organized as the ruling class. The state is a special organization of force. It is an organization of violence for the suppression of some class. What class must the proletariat suppress? Naturally, only the exploiting class, i.e. the bourgeoisie. The working people need the state only to suppress the resistance of the exploiters, 
and only the proletariat can direct this suppression, can carry it out. For the proletariat is the only class that is consistently revolutionary, the only class that can unite all the working and exploited people in the struggle against the bourgeoisie, in completely removing it. The exploiting classes need political rule to maintain exploitation, i.e., in the selfish interests of an insignificant minority against the vast majority of all people. The exploited classes need political rule in order to completely abolish all exploitation, i.e., in the interests of the vast majority of the people and against the insignificant minority consisting of the modern slave owners, the landowners and capitalists. The petty bourgeois Democrats, those sham socialists who replaced the class struggle by dreams of class harmony, even pictured the socialist transformation in a dreamy fashion, not as the overthrow of the rule of the exploiting class, but as the peaceful submission of the minority to the majority which has become aware of its aims. This petty bourgeois utopia, which is inseparable from the idea of the state being above classes, led in practice to the betrayal of the interests of the working classes, as was shown, for example, by the history of the French revolutions of 1848 and 1871, and by the experience of socialist participation in bourgeois cabinets in Britain, France, Italy, and other countries at the turn of the century. All his life Marx fought against this petty bourgeois socialism, now revived in Russia by the socialist revolutionary and Menshevik parties. He developed his theory of the class struggle consistently, down to the theory of political power of the state. The overthrow of bourgeois rule can be accomplished only by the proletariat, the particular class whose economic conditions of existence prepare it for this task and provide it with the possibility and the power to perform it. While the bourgeoisie break up and disintegrate the peasantry and all the petty bourgeois groups, they weld together, unite and organize the proletariat. Only the proletariat, by virtue of the economic role it plays in large-scale production, is capable of being the leader of all the working and exploited people, whom the bourgeoisie exploit, oppress, and crush, often not less but more than they do the proletarians, but who are incapable of waging an independent struggle for their emancipation. The theory of class struggle, applied by Marx to the question of the state and the socialist revolution, leads as a matter of course to the recognition of the political rule of the proletariat, of its dictatorship, i.e., of undivided power directly backed by the armed force of the people. The overthrow of the bourgeoisie can be achieved only by the proletariat becoming the ruling class, capable of crushing the inevitable and desperate resistance of the bourgeoisie, and of organizing all the working and exploited people for the new economic system. The proletariat needs state power, a centralized organization of force, an organization of violence, both to crush the resistance of the exploiters and to lead the enormous mass of the population, the peasants, the petty bourgeoisie, and semi-proletarians, in the work of organizing a socialist economy. By educating the Workers' Party, Marxism educates the vanguard of the proletariat, capable of assuming power and leading the whole people to socialism, of directing and organizing the new system, of being the teacher, the guide, 
the leader of all the working and exploited people in organizing their social life without the bourgeoisie and against the bourgeoisie. By contrast, the opportunism now prevailing trains the members of the Workers' Party to be the representatives of the better-paid workers, who lose touch with the masses, get along fairly well under capitalism, and sell their birthright for a mass of pottage, i.e., renounce their role as revolutionary leaders of the people against the bourgeoisie. Marx's theory of the state, i.e., the proletariat organized as the ruling class, is inseparably bound up with the whole of his doctrine of the revolutionary role of the proletariat in history. The culmination of this role is the proletarian dictatorship, the political rule of the proletariat. But since the proletariat needs the state as a special form of organization of violence against the bourgeoisie, the following conclusion suggests itself. Is it conceivable that such an organization can be created without first abolishing, destroying the state machine created by the bourgeoisie for themselves? The Communist Manifesto leads straight to this conclusion, and it is of this conclusion that Marx speaks when summing up the experience of the Revolution of 1848-51. to 51.